Do you need treatment or surgery? There's no need to wait or travel abroad. Receive treatment at Kingsbridge Private Hospital in Belfast or Ballykelly under the Northern Ireland Planned Healthcare Scheme at potentially no cost. Why wait? Text hello to 51777 or visit kingsbridgeprivatehospital.com for further information. Let's Go Green, sponsored by Airgrid, managing and operating Ireland's electricity grid for a cleaner energy future. Check out airgrid.ie for more. Hello, and you are very welcome to this week's episode of Let's Go Green here on Midlands 103. Each week, we try to tackle issues around the environment, while also giving you some tips and tricks on how you can make some small changes that will have a positive and long lasting impact. Well, for many of you, I think it's safe to say we're back now in the autumn routine. Um, I hope if you did have somebody going back to school that they all got off safely and they're all settled back in safe and well. I know many people in my own close circle had people starting little school and big school in the last couple of weeks. And I know how stressful all of that is. Um, so I hope you're safe and well as you tune in to this week's show. Well, if you've been listening to Let's Go Green for a while now, you'll know that that I have a particular interest in healthcare. Um, and it is an area where perhaps we don't talk about the impact of how we do things in healthcare is having on the environment and the role that all of those involved in the medical sector have to play when it comes to tackling climate change. And we're joined now by Dr. Sean Owens. And Dr. Sean is a GP who is part of Irish Doctors for the Environment. And he's also chairperson of the Climate and Health um, Group Alliance, I should say. Sean, you're uh, very welcome to the show. Oh, thank you, Ashton. Thank you for having me. And yes, we have uh, a trip to school today uh, with all of the emotions that entails. Um, it's a nice time of year. It is. It is. I know for many parents, um, it's a great time of year because they get back to a bit of normal routine. And for those of us that work in education, it's a bit of a hard adjustment after the long holidays. But you're looking up. Enough said about that one, Sean. Um, Sean, why are doctors investigating or looking at your impact in terms of the environment? What, what has gotten you guys thinking? Well, probably there's a, there's a few reasons. The first and the overriding reason uh, that kind of informs not just healthcare professionals in this space, but you know people interested in active transport or uh, people who are trying to deliver more sustainable food is that we are in the middle of a climate crisis. It's not a future mm-hmm. threat. It's evolving um, uh, slowly over our lifetimes. And we have to do what we can to mitigate that, um, you know, limit the, the worst of those um, results. So... Um, you know, healthcare professionals have really lived in a bubble, I think, of, um, you know, as I might have said before, this limitless resources and negligible waste. And it's not just healthcare, which has a kind of egregious, um, you know, carbon footprint and waste footprint, antibiotic footprint. Um, but that's kind of normal life. You know, we can go to Spain how many, mm-hmm. however many times you want. You can buy as many, you know, el- electronic gadgets as you want. Um, there's just far too much stuff and we don't know where it goes, but that's very true in healthcare. And that's the second reason. It's not just for the climate crisis all around us. Healthcare is um, is uh, not very efficient and greening it is also in line with being more evidence-based. So quality care, greener care, uh, more environmentally sustainable care. Uh, it's like one big Venn diagram and they all overlap. So uh, these are all um, positives. Um, you know, for example, if we mitigate the, cl- the climate crisis, we'll have a better or more robust healthcare system, not just for our children, but for ourselves, Ashling, as we grow, as we grow older. I want a viable healthcare system. Yeah, and we do, and we we absolutely need it. Like I think it's the one thing that every single one of us, at some point in our lives, we're going to need a medical professional. Um, you know, and we, we we need to have a better understanding as to, to how the healthcare system works. I think uh, for those of us that don't work inside it, but like Sean, I'm type one diabetic. And I use a insulin pump and a continuous glucose monitor. And I've mentioned it on the show before because it's uh, one of my pet peeves with the kit is when it comes, it's it comes. OK, I get it from my pharmacy, my paper bag, then it's in a box. And then each individual item is in a plastic box with more paper and there's more plastic and bits. And like I'm just one person. 
But the amount of healthcare waste that I produce kind of baffles me. And I know, and I'm saying this because I know the reason all of these little bits and pieces that I need to use to manage my healthcare um, are they're individually packed and vacuum wrapped and all of that. They have to be minded. They have to get to me safely and intact. They also have to be sterile so that they're safe to use. So like you look at your own GP practice or maybe an A&D and the amount of different pieces of kit that you need to use in a day. If we still need them to be sterile, how do we reduce the amount of waste that's involved? Because it, it just seems like a really big challenge from my perspective. Well, it's not a, a challenge unique to healthcare. You know, um, the supermarket shop, uh, why are all of the fruits individually packaged? Um, or you open up, a, you know, a new bit of technology. Why is there so many um, fiddly plastic bits? And I suppose um, a more bird's eye view would be, well, um, what is the greenest healthcare? And um, it's actually to have none at all is to stay healthy. And I, that isn't, of course, always possible. But mm-hmm. if you take diabetes as an example, um, only believe about five to ten percent of diabetes is type one. The vast majority is type two, which is yes, genetic, um, but also re- related to our our environment. It can be um, epigenetic, which means it's kind of passed down and genes are turned on and off. But a lot of it's due to things like food and built environment. So. Um, we've run many workshops with other healthcare professionals and a bit like yourself, because we see the plastic, we're, we're kind of uh, fixated with it. I would say to you, is your care being um, mostly carried out with your GP? And if so, uh, if you're with a consultant, uh, for example, is it maybe sometimes virtual? You know, are there things that we can be done to deliver your care to keep you out of hospitals where the, that's where the biggest um, uh, carbon footprint is? Well, then we're given actually quite efficient care. So kind of you know, park the, the plastics and the paper and all of that, because some of that can be recycled and uh, quite often in healthcare, it can't. So there's things you could do to make the care that we deliver greener. But the big wins are keeping people healthier and, and out of the hospitals in the first place. Okay. Where, where possible, you know, it's not always possible, of course. Um, so that's why our doctors' environment are very strong proponents of things like active transport. You know, for example, the bike to work scheme was estimated in Scotland that if only 5% of people used their bikes, not even for getting to work, but just for a spin at the weekends, the whole scheme would pay for itself. But it would have huge downstream benefits on not just ED waiting rooms, but outpatients and being able to get an appointment with your GP. And so I think what healthcare professionals like ourselves are saying is, can we reimagine uh, the healthcare system that we have, which is all focused on disease and yes, packaging and, and medications and rethink it as a healthcare system as opposed to disease care. And the only way you can do that is to make our uh, our surroundings more conducive to uh, healthy diets, uh, better sleep and, um, and, and activity. Because there will always be a need, won't there, for like a hospital theatre has to be spotlessly clean. The, the, the tools that are used to, to, to operate in somebody like they have to be sterile. So on that side of things is probably very little, probably something, but little that can be done to change it. Whereas if we focus overall on improving society's health and awareness, that would have a big impact. But there's an author called Kate Raworth. You probably know of her. She wrote Donut Economics. And basically the whole premise is modern economics is, um, you know, input and output and, and margin and all that. But if you just do one thing and put a big uh, circle around that and say, this is all in a closed system called the planet, you have to really rethink everything because there aren't limitless resources and mm. we do have to consider our waste. So even the example there you give of the, of the surgery is everything has to be sterile. But does it have to be discarded afterwards? Can you autoclave things? And you might now, what's an autoclave? So that is how you would uh, sterilize uh, equipment. Okay. But because of the risk of uh, things like CJD, quite often um, a lot of that might be um, might be discarded altogether and incinerated, even though there's ever been what like five or ten or something cases of uh, CJD from infected uh, medical equipment ever. And what the tough decisions ahead are going to be? Well. You know, at what point do we draw the line and say it's it's better to use sterilized equipment that or do we discard everything? Is everything in healthcare single use? And actually, if you put that to patients, I don't think patients want everything, even if it's untouched, to be single use and discarded. I mean, really, the the waste is just incredible, especially with the likes of um, PPE through the COVID pandemic. And 
I'm not saying we shouldn't have been using PPE. I think the thing that really bothered uh, environmental doctors is it was never considered, you know, it was mm. never a part of the equation. And that's difficult. There was a surgeon down in, um, an eye surgeon down in Waterford who came up with uh, reusable PPE, but it was never scaled up because it was never, um, it was never, uh, you know, politically important enough. But we have to rethink that. You mentioned COVID there, and and I hate bringing it up on the show, but because um, I think we're all, there's, there's a lot of fatigue around it. Mm. But like, there was a time before COVID when supermarkets were becoming more environmentally friendly and they were making measures in that step. So, you know, you were seeing less, less packaging around, say, the fruit and vegetable aisle. And then all of a sudden COVID came in. And like the other day, I had somebody in my life who was sick and all they wanted was banana on toast. So they just said, listen, we we'll just go to the shop and get me a banana. I was like, yeah, grand. I couldn't buy a single banana. I had to buy a bunch because they were all wrapped in plastic. Um, there is a bit of a rollback, I think, needed around COVID because we were making efforts towards being better about the environment. Then we all fairly and, you know, you know, we can understand why kind of panicked and everything got triple wrapped in plastic to protect us all. And if we were, we were all washing our groceries when they got inside the front door. We kind of need to take a step back now and, and go, right, OK, hold on. We need to be a bit more responsible around how we do these things. Yeah, well, I mean, it's quite nice that now with the, the likes of plastics, you can give them back to the supermarket and ask them to mm. uh, to, to take that take that on. Uh, I suppose that the problem is we've never been asked. You know, do we need um, uh, everything single wrapped? Um, I think if we have a choice, we would we would roll back. The other thing with food and COVID is that we've seen the shelves empty. The storm Ophelia, the same. We've seen the st- the shelves empty, and. It should have really woken us from our complacency that we are incredibly food insecure in Ireland. You know, COVID is really a time for us to reassess. But where are we, and what what where are our values? What do we want? And I would like to see um, an Ireland that is a, a bit more um, food independent, mm-hmm. so that we're not importing so much of this. Um, you know, fruit, vegetables, and will not be um, producing our own bananas or pineapple <laughs> anytime soon. But um, no, but uh, we can make efforts, you know, to to be more, more sustainable in, in our food supply. Well, there's a lot more we could do just in terms of food, but um, uh, transport and and energy. Um, so I mean, there's there's an incredible amount of work to be done, and um, it can kind of swampy, as I'm sure you probably have felt before. So if you just kind of stick to you know staying lean, if you wish, um, healthcare is a good one because. It's what we call a triple win, you know, uh, actions at a macro and a micro level to uh, improve patient care are also good for the planet and also good for our pocket because a healthier population is more economically viable and vibrant. Um, and um, you're seeing off this uh, this climate crisis and making it a more attractive country for other people to come to as well. And for me, it's a quieter day's work. People are, you know, whizzing around the the town, the city on their bikes. That they're eating, you know, fresh and sustainable food every time, and they're not as glued to their screens, and there isn't as much plastic around. You know, they'll be healthier, and um, that's all well evidence based. Mm-hmm. And there's, um, it's a prize worth fighting for, I think, and it's it's correct too. What you're saying, it all sounds very logical. And like you're not reinventing the wheel here. You're just asking us to be to to take for all of us to take a bigger look at this. But I wonder, like you and I, we've both been around a while for something like this to actually happen. It needs to get political momentum. And for that to happen, you'd nearly need every doctor in the country demanding it. So what is the the interest level like amongst your colleagues? You know, how widespread is this interest in being more environmentally friendly amongst the medical professional as a whole? Well, I mean, healthcare professionals and our doctor's environment includes um, a whole no- a range of healthcare professionals. Um, we're all people who come in and turn on the news. Everyone is uh, informed to various degrees now. Um, but I mean, I think everyone's at different stages of um, this kind of shock and grief. And of course, the Philosopher Timothy Morton calls this a hyper object. It's really hard to get your arms around, you know, what is happening uh, to the planet with sea level rise, or you know, we'll all live through a time when we probably have no Arctic sea ice in the summer. What what will that mean for me, for my children? Um, so I think sometimes you can stall, sometimes you can just go back to normal life. But I think you're always compelled to come back to this problem. How can I uh, live um, a little bit more in accordance to uh, my natural surroundings? Be more connected to myself, to my community, and to the and to the planet. 
and they're all gains. Um, and it's, I think that's the main thing is that it fits with our um, uh, code of ethics, you know, to first do no harm mm. uh, and to be mindful of um, our resources. So th- there's an, an automatic attraction to this, I think, with healthcare professionals. The problem is we're so busy. We're yeah. And there's always something else. The agenda is always packed. And the one of the key things with climate change is the time frames kind of con us. It looks nice today. The weather's quite mild. Um, you know, is this really happening? And every five years we get an IPCC report saying it's all dreadful. And then, you know, normal life continues. Kind of continues on, yeah. On the news, you know, distracts us all. Um, so, no, there is, it is a growing movement. Um, and the key is not to get burnt out, I think, and stress that uh, the things that we can do in healthcare are for a clinical reason. Um, you know, better inhalers would be a good example. Um, a diet that's mostly based around plants would be another good one. Um, or, you know, advocating for sustainable transport in your in your local environment. You know, if you're a, a GP or a physio and you stand up and say, well, I want this for my patients, um, I think that is a, 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 that's possible to um, catch the ear of your local uh, policymaker because the policies are all there. And what people don't realise is, to have things a bit more environmentally sustainable in your in your um, locale, it has to be delivered by local authorities, and they kind of listen to the loudest. So we can't expect a healthier planet to come along. What we'll the shout for it, Ashling? Yeah. And like you know, he who shouts the loudest and all of that. But I suppose, like I know, um, my own GP is. Um, I know she's overburdened. It's very hard to get an appointment with her. She's amazing. Um, I have gotten phone calls from her at maybe half nine at night. I know she's seen her first patient at eight a.m. Um, like to do this. Now I know we all need to take responsibility. You can't just be in one sector of society. But is there anything like? Are there things that say GPs like yourself that are interested and and really do want to make a difference? Okay, fair enough. When the politicians come knocking on the door and we know we're going to have an election in the next two years, um, you know, raise this as a topic. But in your day to day, are there changes as a medical professional in your own practice that you can make, like small steps that you can make to have a difference? No, absolutely. So, for example, um, you mentioned how some of these, you know, uh, actions that we're asking for, you know, bike lanes or, um, you know, know, subsidies for healthy food. It's low tech, if you wish. It's not reinventing the wheel. But the science behind it is incredibly high tech. So if you take, for example, time spent in nature, why does that work to relieve stress, uh, depression, anxiety? Is it the shapes of nature? There's evidence to suggest so. Is it the smells of nature? Is it the the awe of nature? And there's this whole burgeoning body of evidence to say time spent in nature is really good for us. And of course, in Ireland, we've, uh, despite our green fields, we've a dearth of it. It's low tech interventions, but the science behind it is in, is incredibly high tech. Um, so if you have somebody who comes in with um, you know uh, um, an issue like mental health, you can refer them to uh, like a program called Woodlands for Health, like a 12 week course where you spend time in nature in a group setting. And there's so much going on within that space that has been shown to uh, improve well-being. Um, or maybe it's something like Park Run on a Saturday morning. Um, I mean, there's community, there's activity. We know that exercise is probably the top intervention for um, for moderate to mild, low mood or anxiety. Or um, you could, um, you know, uh, give someone who's in with their uh, pre-diabetic consultation some recipes for healthy plant-based uh, meals and swap out um, you know, the junk food or even uh, decrease the amount of red meat in their diet. So these will all have positive environmental effects. And the number one carbon footprint in primary care and in, in, in GP land is uh, with our prescribing. So if there's things that we can do that are evidence-based, that are practical, that are that catch the interest of the patient um, to be that inflection point and um, be that, um, I don't know, that node in the community to be like a seed for healthy changes. Um, well, there are things that you can do that cumulatively, cumulatively over time, I think will have a, a major effect. And that's what we hope anyway. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. So 
it really means that you have to, if the routine has been, you know, refer the patient for, say, counselling services that you know are oversubscribed and there's probably going to be a long waiting list that perhaps this Woodlands Health, it's another avenue that could also be, you could also do referral, a referral for that or, you know, simple things like maybe for your local GP, know when the park run is in your local park. Be aware of these things that are happening in the locality that your patients can plug into. It's a fair point, actually. And actually, you've touched on something there. I mean, there's now um, a burgeoning movement called social prescribing. Mm. A worker or a social prescriber in your area will yeah, pinpoint you, but it's very hard to keep up to date with when is the breastfeeding group, when is the uh, the walking group, when is the um, I don't know, crochet, whatever it might be. Yeah. Um, and or you know alcoholics and others, and you can point people to resources within your own community, and it turns that ends up a little bit like a spinning wheel. Your community gains momentum because it's being used, and other relationships are forged, and it's a bit like a muscle. It needs to be exercised. Our community, where in some of the most deprived areas, that's been allowed to fatigue. Um, so social prescribing is uh, something I have great hope for, but it's very you know, operator dependent and, you know, you don't need to have a link worker with you. You can just make those um, small referrals yourself and it doesn't have to be all or nothing. You can say, well, you know, here is the social uh, prescription, if you will. And here is a trial of a medication for, uh, I don't know, your blood pressure or your um, your mental health or whatever it might be. And um, and then you can be responsible to how you prescribe and say, well, at six months, is that working? Well, let's stop it. We're very eager to start medications. We're not so eager to stop them. And it's probably the whole medical paradigm is that you're armed with the prescription pad. Sometimes mm. we feel that patients want a prescription. Often they just want reassurance or an answer or an evaluation, whatever it might be. Um, so there's a lot that we can do on our side. There's a lot we can do to tailor um, patient expectations. But I think the wins are probably in primary care because I said all of the carbon, all the water, all the waste, uh, all of the antibiotic footprint is primarily in in the hospital setting, and, and they're really overstretched at the minute. So the more we can do to keep health in the community, uh, the better, and that's a co-win for the environment. I was talking to a primary school teacher the other day, and I was I was quite shocked. I was mentioning my goddaughter was starting pr- uh, primary school, and I was all excited for her. And isn't it great that parents don't have to worry about the cost of school books this year? And she was like, no, I think it's a waste of money. And I was really surprised. And she said, there, there'll be teachers who will order more than they need because they can. And I'm wondering, is there, because I'm, I'm sure, you know, we all tend to buy, you know, we see something on special offer. Should I get that extra bottle of pasta sauce or whatever it might be, you know? How are GPs when it comes to being like, is there waste in what's being bought into the surgery in terms of equipment and supplies? You know, is it keeping up with the routine of what you've always ordered as opposed to maybe yeah, reviewing what you're ordering and whether or not you actually need all of it? No, uh, GP um, and primary care is quite responsible because we're small to medium enterprises. Mm. Uh, but we have to pay. So, uh, typically, we're fairly frugal um, like that probably isn't the um isn't the same in the HSE. And I think they've they're trying to come to terms with that. You know, there's a, probably a, a culture of waste there. Um and in fairness, they have now produced their own um uh, green uh, strategy and they're in the middle of implementing it at the minute. But in um outside of the hospital, whether it's a GP practice or podiatry or physiotherapist, no, it actually comes down to economics and there's a, like it, it all overlaps. You, you don't buy in more couch rolls than you need. You don't buy more um, ultrasound machines than you need. Uh, we're quite responsible. Probably the biggest um, resource that we find hard to manage is ourselves and our time. So mm. your GP who's in at eight and uh, out at nine, um, I would advise, well, I would hope there's a six hour break in the middle, but there probably isn't. I suspect there's is, not, no, but I get where you're coming from. And then you lose out, Ashton, you know, mm. lose your GP. So I have, you know, there is a manpower um, or one part uh, uh, issue in healthcare that's being addressed and um, trying to retain talent is um, always going to be an issue. Um, but no, to answer your question, we're fairly uh, prudent. Okay. So it's about thinking outside the box the next time the patient sits down in front of you. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we there's a lot of here to condense. We managed to put this all into one infographic. It can be found on the ICGP website under Planetary Health. And it's really, you know, breaking the whole uh, topic down into three 
three sections. Number one, there's a climate crisis that's going to affect health. Number two, what can we do in the consultation? So plant-based diets, social prescribing, lifestyle, uh, a few hotspots like inhalers, uh, reduce the medication. Well, can I ask, medication. what's the issue with inhalers? And the little spray ones are quite potent in terms of their warming effect, you know, times 3,000 up to uh, compared to the little powder ones. And, you know, they're fairly equivocal in their effect unless you're, um, you know, very young or something. And, um, uh, you know, for example, Ventolin is a mm. widely prescribed uh, inhaler for people with asthma or COPD. And we reckon the carbon footprint of that one inhaler might be the same as driving from, um, you know, one environment to the other. Whereas wow. the powder one is the same, uh, you know, the same drug, the same clinical indication, but maybe the same carbon footprint as just driving down to the shops. So there are things that we could okay. do that make a, a meaningful difference. The rest of it is actually about fixing healthcare. How do we make healthcare more efficient and stop the duplication and to start getting into slouch care and mm-hmm. politics? It's a, big, it's a big job of work, but and I suspect it's one that we're going to be talking more and more about in, in coming years. And and I know you've mentioned social prescribing, and if people are interested in that, I think it's something that I will touch on here in the show in in the coming weeks. But to start. Local libraries are a fantastic resource for different social groups. If you're looking for an outlet, if perhaps you you want something like a new hobby or new, you want to get out and meet new people in a safe way. Like I know in Tullamore Library at one point, they had German classes. They definitely had um, making classes and, you know, the book clubs and, and all of these activities that we can get ourselves involved in as the doctor will tell us are scientifically evident that they will help us live a longer, healthier life. And yeah, I'm mean, just add one more thing on that point. There was a book released uh, about two years ago by Jeremy Tormey from DCU called Ireland and the Climate Crisis. And it was kind of like the definitive, where is Ireland with its climate uh, targets and um, a lot of talk about energy and wind and this. But the common theme throughout it was community. Mm. It's it's hard to sort of see exactly why that might be. But if you look at some of the greenest countries in the world, they've got excellent uh, social care. They've got a really strong social contract. So thinking about places like Scandinavia. And actually, we've seen, go back to COVID, there is a good social network in Ireland. And we are, um, you know, things like the GAA, it might not seem like something in our arsenal for climate change, but community is a recurring theme. So yeah, drawing on our own resources for just that bit of independence, uh, if there's a shock to the system, um, whether it's food or or weather or whatever it might be, um, there's a lot that we can do. And I think community is something that's quite frequently overlooked. So uh, yeah, it probably starts with the library or yeah, your GA centre. You know, these are really important places for health. Mm-hmm. Well, Dr. Sean Owens, I could talk to you about this all day, but thank you so much for being so generous with your time because I know how valuable it is. Um, thank you for um, just joining us here on Let's Go Green. I will, listeners, do a piece on social prescribing in the, in the next couple of weeks. I will um, put that on my to-do list. But for now, thank you, Sean, and we will be back after the break. Let's Go Green, sponsored by Airgrid, managing and operating Ireland's electricity grid for a cleaner energy future. Check out airgrid.ie for more. You're listening to Let's Go Green here on Midlands 103, and I hope you are enjoying our show so far this week. Well, it is back to school, back to college time of year. And for me, it's kind of like a a New Year 2.0. I I really like this time of year. I'm not quite sure why, but I, I do enjoy it. But it is a time when an awful lot of young people are setting off to college Uh, new lives for themselves, new responsibilities. And we know like statistics would show and surveys and all of that research would show that young people nowadays are, in fairness to them, making really positive efforts when it comes to trying to buy the right products and be sustainable in their life choices. Not every young person, but a lot of them. And I thought we'd chat with Evelyn Fitzpatrick again from the refill mill in Mullingar because Evelyn is, well, let's see, a font of wisdom at this stage (laughs) um, in in relation to all of these different things, Evelyn. But personal hygiene is one that I think might be a struggle for a lot of us who want to be more environmentally minded in our shopping. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, it's hard to kind of there's so many products on the market it's kind of hard to know 
which are the good ones and and which are the ones that just have the really nice packaging. So it's a bit of a minefield. It is. I'm delighted and, to have me on. <laughs> and thank you for coming back. Um, it's always a pleasure to have you on the show. And like a lot of these products that are more environmentally friendly, like whether it's um, a, a deodorant in a cardboard wrapper as opposed to an aluminium can. Sorry, I always struggle with that word. Um, <laughs> but they, 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 you, you could be talking 12 euro. Or, you know, they're, they're not the cheaper items in in any grocery shop, but in particular, if you're trying to be more environmentally friendly. So if you're going to invest, you want to be really sure that what you're buying actually works. And without wanting to cast aspersions on a broad group of the population, but it is something young adults tend to struggle with because they've they've not really got into the routine yet of buying these products themselves and figuring out what ones work best for them and and what ones agree with their skin, you know? So it it is a learning curve that we all had to go through at some point, but it does seem, it seems more complicated now. Yeah, it is, because I feel like our skincare routines and everything are just there's there's 10 or 15 steps rather than just washing your face. So I like to kind of bring it back to basics. And we get a lot of like teenagers into the into the shop as well. So we have conversations regularly on what kind of products they should be using. And I always think that for young people in particular, they should go for when they're trying to find what suits their skin. It's better to go for things with natural ingredients. Mm. Um, and like you said, that does often come with a, a kind of heftier price tag, um, particularly with the deodorants. The deodorants one is is a real struggle. Um, there's so many different types. And the thing about them is with natural deodorant in particular, it's hard to find the right one for your um, skin. So um, I find that what works for one person works really well and might not work for the next person. And it's very frustrating. There are some products out in the market now that are that are fantastic that I'm getting um, some brilliant reviews on. Um, if you want me to mention them, I can mention please, them. Please, yeah, yeah, please. Yeah. Um, there's one in particular. It's made down in Cork. It's called Vico Deodorant. I have um, seen a lot of social media ads for this. They keep yeah, popping up yeah. in my feed. Okay, Vico, yeah. right? Their, mar- their marketing is brilliant. And I have people coming in asking me, is it just marketing or is it actually a great product? And I can say wholeheartedly, it is a fantastic product. It's the only deodorant that I've had in the shop that everybody comes back and says, this one works for me. Okay. So it's it is a good one. There's no nasty chemicals. It's all natural ingredients. Um, the packaging they're working on it. It is a cardboard tube. Um, it's not to everybody's taste, but it's something that they're kind of open about, um, taking feedback on and working on. So it's a small business, and um, I think they're going to go really far because it is one that really, really works for people. So that's a good one if you're if you're looking out for a natural deodorant. That's a good and they're one Irish for. as well, and we should do what we can to support Irish providers. I do wish, though, Evelyn, and if anybody's listening and you're making any of these products, please take me up on this. Do you know the way you can go into any kind of department store and you can get a little tester of perfume and you can try it out and decide, you know, and and come back? Like these companies are doing these products that are substantially more expensive than what you buy in a standard supermarket. I'd love to see them do like little tiny trial packs, like like a seven day trial. Uh, Because I just I have to be honest. I'm reluctant to invest if I don't know it's going to work for me. It's hard. It's really hard. And I understand what you're saying there. Testers would be a really good one. We do try and have testers in the shop on on some of the products. Um, But that's why I would advise to shop small where you can actually have a conversation with somebody who knows what they're saying, you know, who has tried the products themselves or has had feedback from um, customers about the products. So, um, especially from small businesses and eco shops, we're not really looking to make a sale at all costs. We're part of the community and we want people to to, to enjoy the products that we're selling and, and we want to build up a good reputation. So we're not going to sell something that's really just there for the sake of it. Yeah, that, that's, um, a, that's a really good point because like, as you say, you are an independent and like businesses like yours, the, the refill mill type model the, where you yeah. can go in and buy all of these products you're very much reliant on the good word of your customers. So yeah, yeah. if you were to get a reputation for recommending things that just don't work, well, you're not going to survive. Exactly. Exactly. It's okay. really, really important. And um, then what about like skincare um, for young people? Because at that early adulthood stage, 
your skin can be really problematic and just a, a genuine challenge. And it's, you know, yeah. and, and I know parents listen to this will be, I know parents, I, I talk to parents a lot about this, where they're really cautious about what they buy for teenagers and young people in their lives because they don't want it to damage their skin long term. Absolutely, which I'm really glad to hear when people are are conscious about what they are putting onto their skin. So my advice would be look at the back of the packaging and see what the ingredients are. Look for something with natural ingredients. Look for something that has very few ingredients, like the 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 lower the ingredient section, the better. Um, but there are some other great Irish products as well for skincare. So the things like face washes, face washes can be so harsh on mm. skin. Um, so buying one that has something like Clydal oatmeal in it. Um, Sophie Soaps, based in Mullingar, she does a great Clydal oatmeal face wash. It's about eight euros to buy. So it's a, it's standard enough pricing compared to the liquid alternatives. And um, it lasts for, for, a couple of months then as well. So it's not something that you have to go buy every other week. So you're buying a quality product that will be gentle to the skin, not dry it out. And um, they work really well. And she also does another one that has um, um, activated charcoal in it as well. So if you have a teenager that is suffering with acne and wants something that um, will help combat the acne without drying out the skin and is also made with natural ingredients, that's another face wash. It's a really good one. What's that um, company called again? Sophie Soaps. Sophie Soaps and Sophie Soaps yeah. is based in, in Mullingar in County Westmead. So a good good Midlands business. We, we, we yeah, yeah. let's keep it as close to home as we can. <laughs> Fantastic. And like, are people coming into the shop and having these conversations with you? Because I know when I was maybe teenager slash early 20s, I might have been a bit embarrassed to be asking these kind of questions. Yeah. Oh, we have these questions every day, all the time. People come in and ask if it's not the kids themselves asking, it's their parents. Um, And sometimes they come in together and try and figure things out. And it's I think it's just really important to do it. Now, obviously, some people are shy um, and we do kind of if I see someone hanging over, looking at all the ingredients for quite a while, I'll just go over and ask, is everything all right? You need a hand. Um. But especially in small businesses, again, we love talking about this stuff. We're passionate about the products. So um, do shop small and then you'll be able to have the conversations. Um, Yeah. Or even reach out if you're not one for a face to face conversation. Messaging the company directly on Facebook or Instagram is another great way. You know, you'll get solid advice there um, without having to have the, the awkward conversation if you're not comfortable. Yeah, that's just it. Like, and actually, I have an event coming up, um, a sudden event, and I'm, I was contacting a dress rental place the other day um, to, you know, investigate whether they might have something simple. And I knew straight away that they were a serious business because they got back to me really quickly on their social media. And, yeah. and even straight away, I now feel confident going in because I feel like they know what they're talking about. It's a really yeah. nice way to kind of feel yourself out a bit, you know, kind of a, a to, to, Touch your toe in the water and see whether or not you like the business and as to how they deal with you on, on if you send them a, a, an Instagram message or, you know, a, a TikTok reply. Exactly. So what else do we need to be considering then if we're trying to be more sustainable in the products that we're shopping? So I think that tip about the fewer the ingredients on the, the, the product, you know, the more sustainable and natural the, the ingredient is. What about... Um, Ingredients that you recognize, like oatmeal to me, it's oats. So, and I, I I get that. But like sometimes on these products, I don't know what they are, like in all honesty. So I don't know if they're natural or not. Yeah. Yeah. And usually they'll have the kind of chemical compound name on them as well on a lot of products. They won't just say, you know, shea butter or cocoa butter. So sometimes it is a case of just Googling, Googling mm-hmm. what it is and and um, or looking them up online um, to make sure that they're using the right ingredients as well. Um, but I do that myself before I have a product coming in and I'll have to kind of write down, oh God, I can't even pronounce that one. What is it? It's just, you know, coconut oil or something. It's gas, you know, there. so it is a little bit complicated. It does take a little bit more work, um, but it is worth doing. And these are the kind of things, like, let's be honest, if we make the switch, and we find the right one for us, whatever that might be. Once you've figured it out, that's it. You're done. Like it's not the kind of thing that we tend to chop and change. Yeah. Yeah. Once you switch over to natural products, I always find once you move over to them, you're not going back. 
you're not going back to the chemical filled products. Your your um your skill won't actually allow you to go back to it. Now I use natural face washes. There's no way that I could just go into a shop uh, on the main street and just pick up any old brand and put it back onto my skin, um because it will irritate me immediately. So once mm. you're used to using the natural products, you just won't go back, and your skin will feel an awful lot better. And like I know, like. I was very, very lucky in that when I hit the years of starting to use face care products, like not, not just skincare, but like makeup or moisturizers. My mom brought me into now the environmentally friendly ones weren't didn't exist at the time, but she brought me into a department store to a proper makeup counter to get my skin looked at to, to get the right thing. And like, you know, my skin is in great condition because that conversation was had as a teenager about buying the right products for my skin and not damaging my skin as a teenager. That's a really important conversation to have, isn't it? It is. It is because you start these habits and then you don't have to change your ways, you know, 10 or 15 years down the line. You don't have to unlearn using all these products. You're you're starting off with it, making a conscious effort, keeping your skincare routine really simple and then um, just using what works for you. So we have... Um, cork deodorant, we've got Mullingar face wash in the form of, of, of soap. Um, what about now like shampoos, shower gels, that, that kind of thing? What kind of options do we have? Yeah, so I, I'm i always going on about it, but I, I am a sucker for a shampoo bar. Okay. Now, I know a lot of people have had bad experiences with shampoo bars and a lot of people come in and say, try them, doesn't work for me. Um, but... With certain ones, they've they've gotten really good over the last just even the last three years. The quality of them has got has gotten really good. Um, I use shampoo bars all the time. I won't go back to liquid shampoos, even though we have the refill options. Um, there's one brand in particular that I love. It's called Jenny Bars. She's made she makes them in Maynooth. And they are for people that have tried shampoo bars or haven't tried shampoo bars. Um they they don't have a transition period. So a lot of the time when somebody has tried a shampoo bar and it hasn't worked for them, there's kind of a period where your hair will feel a little bit greasy because your so your hair is adjusting to using the natural products. Okay. Nobody wants. Jenny's products don't do that. It goes straight in from the first wash, your hair will be squeaky clean. Um, your hair won't be fuzzy. Um, it's really kind to your scalp. So if you have things like really sensitive skin or if you have dandruff, there's um, different shampoo bars for each kind of scalp and hair. Um, and Jenny's also a great one to talk to about um, her products. She's so passionate about what she does um, and they work really, really well. What about those of us that have colour in our hair and are trying to get rid of the old greys? Yeah, there's there's um options for all of those. And as well, again, I'll give Sophie Soap another mention. Um, she does a great curly hair shampoo and a coloured hair shampoo and conditioner bars. OK. Uh, and the the price point is another thing with those. Um, They can be uh, a bit expensive. So it's about 12 euros to buy a shampoo bar or, and a conditioner bar. Um, so it is more expensive, but they are the equivalent of about two to three bottles of shampoo. And the conditioner bar that I'm using at the minute, I'm using Sophie's conditioner bar and I've been using it since January. Um, I use it every time I wash my hair and I still have about half a bar left. So they will last for ages, particularly the conditioner bars. Um, but when you're using them, the shampoo, you don't have to wash your hair nearly as much. Um, you don't have a residue build up and they just work really, really well. So um, I would give uh, people advice to if you've tried it before, give it a second chance with a really good brand. Um, and if you haven't tried it before, um, it's a nice switch to make. It reduces a huge amount of plastic in your bathroom and also you're using natural products again. And like one of the reasons, like I always feel young people are very hard done by, like um, as we get older, we tend to give out about the generation that comes behind us. But it is like for parents and grandparents and guardians, this is a conversation on personal hygiene that like, we need to be having with young people. They're not going to pick this thing. They're not psychic. Like we actually have to sit them down and say, right, we need to figure out for you. We need to go into such and such a shop or we need to figure out what works for you because, you know, we need to make sure that you are minding yourself because personal hygiene is about health. And OK, you know, the BO issue is there as well. But, you know, this is a really important conversation that we really do need to have with young people, isn't it? 
Absolutely. And and they want to know as well. They don't want to just put any old thing on their skin either. So um, it is important to have those conversations and just it doesn't have to be an awkward conversation at all. We're all going to use these products. We might as well just use the right ones. So uh, a quick chat over over a cup of tea or dinner is is the way to go. And then and, or even when you're out shopping. And if you do find the conversation awkward, run over to Mullingar to Evelyn Fitzpatrick at the refill meal <laughs> and she'll have the chat for you. Just give her a nod and ask. That's right. Talk all day. <laughs> <laughs> well, Evelyn, thank you so much for checking in with us here on Let's Go Green on Midlands 103 once again. Coming up after the break, we're looking ahead to Hedgerow Week. Do you need treatment or surgery? There's no need to wait or travel abroad. Receive treatment at Kingsbridge Private Hospital in Belfast or Ballykelly under the Northern Ireland Planned Health scheme at potentially no cost. Why wait? Text hello to 51777 or visit kingsbridgeprivatehospital.com for further information. Let's Go Green, sponsored by Airgrid, managing and operating Ireland's electricity grid for a cleaner energy future. Check out airgrid.ie for more. You're listening to Let's Go Green here on Midlands 103 and we're joined now by Catherine Casey and Catherine is Head of Climate Change at the Heritage Council. Catherine, you're very welcome to Let's Go Green. Thanks very much, Ashley. It's lovely to be here. Catherine, Hedgerow Week. Now, we do seem to have a day for everything these days, but what on earth is Hedgerow Week? There does seem to be a day for everything, doesn't there? But it's a good way, I suppose, of raising awareness. Mm-hmm. Hedgerow Week is a collaboration between Chagask and the Heritage Council. Actually, Chagask have been running Hedgerow Week for a good few years to raise awareness among farmers in particular of hedgerows. But this is the first year we've collaborated with them. And our aim is to broaden the collaboration to show people that um, hedgerows are valuable for wildlife, for climate and also for farmers. And to get farmers and ecologists talking about the positives. By and large, we all want the same thing. We all want healthy landscapes, healthy wildlife, healthy food. And there's lots of things that we have in common to sort of promote how we can work together is really our aim here. How important are hedgerows? Because I think for my, now I'm including myself in this, for, but for most of us, we say, you know, that's a bit of hedge. It's, it's, it's a boundary marker. You know, we don't really think much about them. That's probably true. I think it's sometimes that we, we only really think about our hedgerows when we go overseas and we see that no, not lots of countries don't really have them. A country that, that like Ireland, where our native wild, our native woodland cover is nearly completely gone, hedgerows are massively important. They're like the woodlands that we don't have over the rest of the country. So they're remnants of our woodland. They're where our biodiversity um, can live. It's where they form natural corridors. So biodiversity can move from one place to another. So they're used by everything from bees up to bats. Um, Barn owls will hunt in hedgerows. They'll get food there. Um, lots of birds will nest in hedgerows. Obviously, we have all of the biodiversity of the plants that grow in hedgerows. So there really are, I suppose, a little um, haven of biodiversity. And the great thing about them is they're everywhere. They're all through the country. We've got them um, running right the way from north to south and they've all got value. And as we become, I suppose, a more developed, more urbanised society and in lots of ways as well, our agriculture has become more intensive. Hedgerows have become even more important. I know in my home house, um, the local pigeon population has really taken up home in our hedges, particularly in the back garden. And my God, the noise is uh, something very interesting (laughs) some evenings. But (laughs) that is why, like what you've outlined there, that's why we have rules around when we can um, cut hedges back. Now, I know there are exemptions, like if the hedge is overgrowing and is causing a a road safety issue, the, the thing is to just go out and sort that out because obviously road safety is paramount. But there is a certain time of year when we're allowed interfere with them, isn't there? Well, cut them. Yeah. I mean, the hedges do need to be cut. They're not a totally natural feature of the landscape. So the reason that they are the way they are is because we trim them regularly. And from a farmer's point of view, to keep a hedge stockproof, they want it to be trimmed regularly. So the but the type of hedging that we have, mostly the white thorn bushes and the black thorn bushes, they actually thrive on being cut. Um, regularly um, and they actually sprout more and they, they thicken more. So to have a nice stock roof hedge that's good for the farmer, it needs to be cut on a regular basis. But as you say, not in the bird nesting season. So in Ireland, that's basically from March to the end of August. That's why we have Hedgerow Week at the start of September. It's to raise people's awareness that this is the time. Now, they don't have to go, go out straight away, but from now on through the winter, it's fine to cut your hedges. And it's a good idea, as you said, particularly around roadsides, they, they need to be cut for road safety reasons. But even within the farm, perhaps not every year they don't need to be cut, but every two or three years, um, we'll get a nice uh, bushy hedge, a nice dense stockproof boundary. We'll get lots of carbon sequestered, which is great for the climate. And we'll also get lots of biodiversity. So everybody's happy. 
And I know that the full list of all the events taking place is available on your own website, on, on the Heritage Council's website. But give us an idea of the type of events taking place this week. Yeah, so Chagask have got, have got a, a walk, a farm walk on um, each day of the week. They've got uh, Chagask sites across the country, everywhere from Cork to Cavan, um, and we're collaborating with them. So we've got Heritage and Biodiversity Officers and myself and the Wildlife Officer with the Heritage Council, Lorcan Scott, are going to go and visit um, um, the Chagask sites. We'll be there with Catherine Keeney, the Countryside Management Specialist, talking about the management of hedgerows, um, the wildlife that you can get in hedgerows, and how we can ensure that everybody benefits, I suppose, from the management of hedgerows. So there's one of those on each week. And as you say, each day, of the week. They're all on our website. But also we've got um, events happening throughout the year, the, the week um, organised by heritage officers, biodiversity officers. Some of our NGOs have been very active as well. Um, Hedgerows Ireland and the Norvision, I know in Kilkenny, are very, very active with Hedgerow Week events. And here in the Midlands, we've got a special edition of the In Your Nature podcast, which I know you're probably familiar with, Ricky Whelan and Niall Hatch um, from Birdwatch Ireland. Um, so that's sponsored by Leash Offaly in Westmeath, County Council. So it's going to be a special Hedgerow edition of that just for this week as well. So it is a busy week. And if you'd like to find out more, hop over to the Heritage Council's website. Catherine, I know you are a font of information on all things um, biodiversity and the importance of the connection between the Heritage Council and working to mitigate against climate change. So you have promised to come back for a, a full chat about that maybe a little bit later this year. But for now, thank you very much for joining us on Let's Go Green here on Midlands 103. Thanks very much, Ashley. Let's Go Green, sponsored by Airgrid, managing and operating Ireland's electricity grid for a cleaner energy future. Check out airgrid.ie for more. It's Let's Go Green here on Midlands 103 and thank you very much for joining us on this week's episode of the show. A big thank you to everyone who's gotten in touch with me over the last week or two after listening to Let's Go Green and you've certainly got me thinking guys so if you'd like to get involved in the show or if you've got something you'd like to suggest for the show, even if you don't want to come on air yourself but perhaps as somebody did in the last couple of days get in contact with me to nominate a guest for Let's Go Green, please Please do hop over to midlands103.com, click on the on-air team. You will find my name there, Ashling O'Rourke, and you can send me an email directly. And I do read all those emails, even if I don't always get a chance to reply, even though I, I do try. I do try to reply to everybody, um, but I definitely read them all. And um, got some ideas coming up now in the next couple of weeks that I think you will get a kick out of. As always... Let's Go Green on Midlands 103 is available on your preferred podcast app, whether that be Spotify, Google or Apple. So if you enjoyed tonight's episode of the show, please do recommend it to your friend. Just hop over to your podcast app and share the episode link with them. But I'm afraid we are right out of time this week. I do hope to be looking at secondhand September in the coming weeks. So if you'd like to suggest a spokesperson who's involved in that particular campaign, please do get in contact with me. But for now, have a great week. Stay safe. And I'll be back same time next week with another edition of Let's Go Green. Let's Go Green, sponsored by Airgrid, managing and operating Ireland's electricity grid for a cleaner energy future. Check out airgrid.ie for more.